time stuff that I wish I had. The big time stuff that'll make you mad. The big time stuff. I like the big time stuff. Hey, Neil, it's Chris. Christopher. Hey, my friend. How are you? Good. <laughs> it's good to hear your voice again, twice in a day. I know. You're not in the doctor's office again or at the testing center or wherever you were. The Nexus interview centers were expedited travel into Canada? No. <laughs> Is that what you were doing? Trying yeah. to get into Canada? Well, I'm already in Canada now, but yeah, that's what I was trying to do as well. Ah, who are you visiting? Um, a bunch of the folks from CDL. So uh, a couple of potential co-investors and um, potential investors and uh, the guy who runs the program, and one family office. Mm-hmm. What's CDL, CDL? I think I told you about, like, uh, this incubator I belong to in Canada, um, mm-hmm. where we see pretty good deal flow from. They're, they they run an incubator without uh, all of the crazy ego you might see in Silicon Valley. It's like it's becoming the white combinator of, of Canada. They have five chapters. Um, each chapter is at a major university, research university. Um, the way it ends up working is you have these small breakout sessions with companies and then a larger session where you set your uh, 60-day objectives with them. And you get to follow and help them along. Uh, a company needs a mentor to continue to survive till the next cut, for the next 60 days. And then you get to see whether they hit their, their objectives. So for like ODS, um, mm-hmm. Well, they did miss an objective to raise their seed rounds. Um, uh, to, sorry, to raise their bridge rounds, they were able to raise a million dollars in coming to six meetings and sorry, six days worth of meetings total. I, you know, I assume they came the day before and flew out. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it was, you know, pretty short order comparatively to you know running around town to try and get that that money. Um, right. And then they gained a bunch of mentors. So, like, one of the uh, benchmarks for their device. So, like, every major device, they look at other devices that the FDA has approved, right? Um, one yeah. of the three things they're benchmarking, we end up having to – we end up finding that um, one of the mentors in CDL in Canada here in Vancouver, um, for the US FDA, they use his, his previous device at his last company as the benchmark. So having a guy like that help you through the regulatory uh, portion, I don't know how you pay for that quickly, right? Um, and, you know, and it costs us, you know, a quarter of a percent of the company investing over four years, <laughs> like nothing, <laughs> you know, for wow, a guy like yeah. that, yeah, for a guy yeah. like that, right? Um, mm-hmm. So they kind of run the meeting with a little bit of a Robert's Rules of Order. Uh, mm-hmm. So everybody's pretty on time, and I, I don't think I've seen us be more than two minutes late throughout an entire day. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And everybody comes oddly prepared, where I don't see that in this world so often anywhere else. So yeah, you know, everybody's got their notebooks with questions, you know, all ready to go. Uh-huh. Everything they're thinking. Um, after you know, after people talk about their ninety day or their sixty day objectives. They they go around the room and see who's interested in potentially investing and, you know, why or why not? Is the value too high? You know, what are the things you think they're missing? 
you get somebody who occasionally raises their hand and asks about the technology, and then the PhD who's been in that field for 20 years happens to be in the room. The the person who did the original business diligence happens to be in the room. And then regularly you see somebody say, hey, I know that customer. Um, I know a customer. I think I can get them an intro. If they can sign a deal, then let's all invest in this valuation. Who would like to join? And then the company can say yay or nay. Um, oh, wow. They can really so, move it forward, huh? Yeah. So you have an entire ecosystem built into a single-day meeting that happens every 60 days. Um, That's cool. How yeah, many people in this meeting typically? How many bodies? Well, so it's, it's almost set up like a baseball field. So you've got, um, you know, like 20 investors around the table. You know, and, and what's interesting about that is most of those guys are 15 to 20 years my senior. Um, you've got around the room, you've got the PhDs who help do the diligence. They're probably there for the first meeting. But since companies get to continue to be there, they're not there every meeting. Although right. it wouldn't be very difficult to request them because they're, you know, on the campus of UBC. Right. Um, you've got uh, potential industry partners in the room. So, uh, you know, they don't, we don't have anybody from Medtronic covering us yet. But, um, for instance, in like the Toronto chapter, which is a little more mature, five years old, I think, or four years old, you know, they have like the VPs of Microsoft and Amazon all around the room looking at, you know, potential acquisitions right from the get-go. A bunch of wow. VCs in the room. Yeah, so here you've got a bunch of VCs in the room, a bunch of super angel investors. You do have some people from industry. You do have some people from family offices. You have some uh, random guests who would just be considered potential friends to something somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But you've got an entire ecosystem in the room every time, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah, that is. And the room kind of expands and contracts accordion style to whether they need the breakout sessions that, you know, that happen three or four times throughout the day to make sure everybody's got their 60-day objective set. Because they do that in small groups versus in a massive group in 15-minute sessions, again, where everybody's really kind of thought it through. Yeah, 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 that's great, Neil. It's a nice format. Yeah, they're opening a chapter in New York, so I'm going to start going to that one as well. And I'm debating about going to the Calgary chapter as well, um, just because the deal flow is so good. You've got an entire ecosystem. So even before we open up this SPV, I've had like a million worth of interest just to start, just because of the group here. Good. Uh-huh. Which is oh, nice, good. right? Just to yeah. start. So. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I, you should go to all of them, Calgary, Saskatchewan, spend all your time in Canada. It, it, it's a debate I have, literally. Um, there's two or three people who go to a bunch of the chapters, not every one of them. But, you know, we debate about Montreal. Um, I have smaller debate about Toronto because there's a focus of tech, quantum computing, and AI. Where, like, yeah. I want to go to the ones where they have more of a focus of um, biomed tech is what they call it today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um but the kind of cool thing is we also saw a bunch of deals um, that, like, on the day they were cutting companies, too, we got to ask a bunch of questions and explain our filters as well. So you had everybody's filters in the room as well. And then um, because I'm an associate, it's not like I have some obligation or I paid a price or the companies pay any equity. They're a nonprofit. Um, so if I didn't find any companies I liked, if I wanted to, I could just simply drop 
But for me, it's been this crazy education process because there's a bunch of companies I wouldn't be looking at that I'm now learning from that are really interesting to me just by helping them in a small amount of time. Mm -hmm. Your wife wants to get a mm -hmm. leave. I'm going to text her. <laughs> I'm not available yet. Yeah, go ahead. Do you want to put me on hold? No, no, I'm good. I got it. Cool. I my wife says too. That's good with my wife as well. How is Morganka, man? She's happy because she's now in the right group at Microsoft. She's working on on this AI platform for getting you to use all of your Microsoft products. Mm -hmm. So I guess there's 800 million Microsoft product users a month and making sure they have the right content being delivered to them across every one of the platforms, I guess, has never been streamlined. Mm -hmm. So they're not that's even trying to sell you anything, but like uh, if they know the right things about you because of your Hotmail sign-in, because of your MSN search, or sorry, I guess your Bing search, how dare I say MSN, um, because of whatever else, you know, they might suggest to you when you pause your Xbox that you've got another game that you forgot about that you bought that you should play, right? It's right. just about right. engaging you to use more of the stuff you've already bought from Microsoft. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think she's liking that because there's a lot of responsibility. You get a lot of views. You know, people are very interested. Yeah. And to kind of break in record with what people are using, looking at, and interacting with passively, mm -hmm. like five or six X more. I saw a presentation by her the other day that she's practicing delivered to a VP, and I was like, wow, this is a freaking cool team. Oh, that's and, nice, huh? Yeah, and she's got a manager with empathy, which I think is really rare in a big tech company. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, good. That's so good. she's good. Yeah. Yay. For her. What about Peely Peely? Oh, Peely's good. She's really good. She's uh, she's off of work this week, so she's happy to take <laughs> a break. She likes her work, though. She's really good at it. It's just so politicized now. I don't know what to do with education in this country. Neil Modi. Well, you and the rest of the country don't know what to do with education in this country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're not alone. Yeah. 300 million Americans uh, wonder. <laughs> 300 million Americans throwing their hands up like, what's going on, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and then, well, and then Betsy DeVos is a yeah, – she's not, she's not qualified. So that's not well, the thing, I was an average student, right? So what went wrong with our education system that I was considered average as a student? As a student? Yeah, like – I get that I didn't get some of the things as quickly, but it's not for lack of intelligence. So right, right, right. That means the system's not working correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah, it's a it's a strange process. I mean, it's come from you know handed down to us by the British. The whole, I think, the whole structure of it is is antiquated. But you know, I'm the offspring of an obsolete machine myself. A doctor? Further back, I meant the agricultural and uh, slave labor system of the South. So you know that machine went obsolete. <laughs> yeah, my dad's a doctor. That's necessary. There's problems in that industry. <laughs>
Yeah. Well, I think yeah, but... all the problems probably existed. Now we just have lots of data about all of them, and we can communicate it too abundantly. <laughs> so... Yeah. <laughs> the problems yeah. are bigger. Yeah, you know, I agree. One of the things I keep seeing in the tech blogs that I'm wondering about, you know, I, I subscribe to a bunch of different things, like every DC would, and you see these things about like how um, you know, half the software jobs are going to be replaced in the next 20 years, right? Mm-hmm. And we talked about this once before, and you said, well, most of the jobs that, you know, you were able to code on your IRS return did not exist, you know, 10 Ten years ago, 50% of them did not exist. Do you, do you see that retraining happening again? Are you seeing signs of that anywhere in the economy? Okay. Yeah, it's um, – well, first, there's a um, – it's never not happened. So if history can be considered to repeat itself, we should see something like that reemerge. The – the fact is, and the, I think what you were talking about is a, a Bureau of Labor Statistics, a BLS report that said that um, it was really remarkable. 87% of the jobs, job descriptions or titles that exist today did not exist in 1990. So we're looking back, you know, 27 years or, yeah, 27 years. And in that span, you know, we've had just a tremendous um, upheaval and a tremendous disruption by technology, but still there's been um, job creation net net, and that it just looks different. And it's something that requires um, tremendous imagination, and most of us really will fail at it. Even if we have a fantastical imagination, we won't <laughs> get it right. But it is interesting because there's just so much absorption now into another layer of abstraction, right, even coding. I saw this um, do-it-yourself DIY thing, and they were—they had these coding blocks like uh, Roblox that kids can do. You know, move the move these blocks and build yeah. themselves. Yeah, I've uh, seen stuff like that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't have to write—you don't have to learn the coding language and write the right syntax, and that's probably good, right? You can abstract away some of those layers, but um, it is really interesting. Um, what what will those um, coding logicians do? Will they be the block builders? They're going to be, you know, brick makers instead of writing a whole bunch of code, and then that stuff's going to go off the shelf itself. That'll be an off-the-shelf <laughs> thing, these bricks they make. So, yeah, I, I, um, I feel pretty comfortable that there will be something. Uh, some so, growth and changing in the nature, but I don't know what it'll be. Maybe it frees more of us up to – go ahead. Do, what, do economists believe in this idea of the singularity even? I don't know. Um, economists haven't economist? covered themselves with – oh, I'm a fledgling economist. Don't you insult me. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, – you know, it's not – I don't mean to be so harsh on uh, economists, but the problem is – among most professions, economists stand out as being the most concrete bound. And this is a challenge I have to fight, too. It, you know, you're looking back almost always forensically at, a, at how economies used to function and expecting them to perform re- relatively in the same way going forward, and it constricts your imagination naturally. 
So I don't know. I mean, there's a there's usually um, a too slow an appreciation of the disruptive changes and the dynamics of an economy that's undergoing um, a lot of shifting and change by economists. So, so they do tend you want to, to answer on behalf of all economists right now? I can't answer on behalf of all economists. And some people who say they're <laughs> economists are poor economists. But when you think about the singularity, Neil, what do you think? Do you think it's a real possibility? you think we're moving in that direction? Yes, but no, I feel really conflicted about the idea, right? Like, it seems like we should be able to get to this utopian uh, place, but I don't, you know, as much as I fight my own humanity, I have a hard time believing in other people's as well. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as much as I accept my own humanity, I have a hard time accepting everybody else's as well. So I don't know. (laughs) And I'm wrestling with it, right? I wrestle with my own humanity. I think lots of people don't. Um, so I wonder, right? Like, if most people aren't even wrestling with their own humanity, how can we get to a place where we could live in this crazy utopian society where, you know, we uh, potentially have the next renaissance? I, I don't know how that exists. I'm not against it by any means. I just don't get it. Yeah. Well, the, um, it's possible that uh, the next renaissance would encapsulate, would create the conditions that wake people up, right? Uh, who, what was that book, Things Hidden Since the Beginning of Time? Is that the book, uh, Gerard? What was the French writer's name? And basically, um, he um, his philosophical leanings led him to argue that, like you were saying, most people are not le- leading a life of any sort of introspection, but they, the most common thing is mimicry, that we adopt our values and um, um, even our goals and life ambitions from the collective consciousness of the society we're in. So we are really just mimicking others. And... Um, Worry about that. You know, the... <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, that's what... Um, Peter Thiel saw when he saw Facebook for the first time, speaking of which, <laughs> speaking of which, he said that this was the greatest tool to create that, um, to exploit. I don't know if he said this. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> to exploit that mimicry that he, because he's a big fan of this Girard guy, too, um, that that uh, he believes most people do just sort of blindly and um, unconsciously follow others keep up with the Joneses and that uh, Facebook was built for advertising because it would make people uncomfortable um, and invite comparisons which always make people more uncomfortable <laughs> and less happy. Well, now it's backfiring on them. I guess there's a natural limit <laughs> to how unhappy people will make themselves but uh, and even how long the advertisers will want to be part of that. But anyway, that's a Separate but related story. So I don't know, Neil. Um, the singularity. I don't know. I think that's always like a little bit uh, farther out than we can even imagine. You know. You no. Know, so it's interesting. I want to bring on the guy who started Creative Destruction Lab, based off of the term in economics, creative destruction. Uh huh. Um, you're probably familiar with. Uh, I mean, I just looked the guy up. Joseph Schumpeter's work. Yeah, Schumpeter. Yeah, Schumpeter. He's a twenties, thirties. Yeah, he was the first one 
to talk about that uh, creative destruction was his term. Yeah. So that's, that's what they named it. Disruptive after. industries. Yeah. And I who's that? Uh, Cl- yeah. yeah. Clayton Kershaw. Oh, uh, Clayton Kershaw. Oh, I was good. Yeah, not Clayton Kershaw. Clayton Kershaw is the pitcher for the Dodgers. But who's the <laughs> Professor Clayton from oh, Harvard Clayton who Christensen. wrote the book? Clayton Innovator's Dilemma. Yes, 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 yes. He's had a couple more after that. He was sick for a while. I don't know. Is he still with us on this plane? I think so, yeah. Randy Garden speaks highly of him whenever I, I don't know, whenever I tune into those emails. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Randy Garn's buddy. Yeah, I think he's also a Mormon. So they they go hand in hand. Those guys. Chad, we should anyway. edit that part out. <laughs> oh yeah, please edit that out. Edit that. Out. No, no, but I mean they're in the same community. Is that why they? Yeah, you know, they're friends. It makes sense. That's all. <laughs> I grew up in Mesa. Don't want to be misunderstood. You're right. Neil. Thank you. <laughs> if we do, we can we can always send your parents' picture dressing up for Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> that, that one will shock everyone. Yes, it's true. But yeah, you know, I, I I actually feel like I should frame that picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not that we need to go more detail, but kind of show you sometimes. Yeah. No. Um. Yeah. So it, he. So Ajay Agarwal, this guy at University of Toronto, is sitting there and he's saying like, "What's going on?" And you know, it's artificial intelligence two buildings over, right? Like. uh the, some of the greatest minds uh, in the field came out of the University of Toronto and it just kept exploding and more and more people kept trying to use some of the same ideas for the same problems. Um, you know, he, as an economist, was trying to explain how he looks at, like, every major, you know, uh, big technology. You know, it's like, like a, it's just a graph that goes down, you know, in value. <laughs> um it was kind of funny. It's like, so let me tell you, let me tell you about what an economist looks like when they look at integrated circuit chips, <laughs> you know, in the seventies. Let me tell you what an economist looks like when they look at dot uh, com. Let me tell you what an economist looks like when they look at AI. It was all the same graph. Um, she's come out with a book, uh, you know, I don't know, something called the Learning Machine. His book's coming out in short order, but it was one of the better speeches I've seen on. AI and where it's headed and all of the conversation and um, how it actually affects the economy. Um, but he gave some really interesting examples of, you know, how it's, how cheap search affected, you know, how we got better at asking questions because now we could ask abundant questions to Google or now Alexa. Um, yes. It, it had and me a little worried that I asked too many questions. <laughs> And does he lament that we are now devoid of fact-based learning, or does he think that it's good for the machines just to give us the facts when we need them? I bet he would lament on it, you know, just having seen him interact with him a couple of times. But I don't know for sure. Right? I don't actually know what's going on, what he's actually thinking about. I, I think his commentary would be more about, like, you would expect this, of course. This would just be the natural course of things. Um, not not yeah. thinking too much about uh you know, what's actually happening again to our humanity. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I just don't know what the, I don't know enough about the structure of the brain and knowledge, but I think, um, and, and certainly people always lament memorizing facts. And, you know, I mean, I remember reading some of the early AI stuff and people were like, yes, now you can focus on, you know, 
deeper thinking. You don't have to remember the capital of Kansas. You can just ask Siri or ask Google, right? <laughs> <laughs> and that might be true. There are some, you know, we can all purge our hard drives to a certain extent, but is is building in that capacity just the fact, uh, the process of memorization, doesn't that help you in your brain structure in some way or in thinking, your ability to think and process? I don't know. You know These are questions, really. No, I'm no, it's and interesting. Then if AI takes it over, what happens? I, I'm lucky enough to get to like hear Eric's answer to most things. Like we may not actually know for many years, no matter what anybody tells you. And, and mm-hmm. that's like a regular response I might get from him. Like, yeah, we we can debate it, but we won't actually know. So it may not be worth debating. Um, right, right, right. And it's <laughs> the natural trajectory of things. You know, people don't. I mean, I don't want to remember the 50 state capitals. And if I can just ask Siri, it's great. <laughs> but I, the thing know, that I don't Siri like... can't, that can't do for me that you can, though, Chris, is, is explain to me how to have a more peaceful life. And sometimes with my wife included. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I mean, the, there's no question that the... And I, I think that's the other side of the coin you kind of touched on, Neil. Perhaps it's true the quality of our human interactions will be far richer because um, it will be hopefully. But I don't see that so far. Most no. of the younger people I'm talking to, while they're smarter than me, they don't seem as connected to the world as, I'll say, us. People who are people who are in their 30s seem slightly more connected to the world than people who are 15. Um, and I thought it was the opposite before. Mm-hmm. 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 Typically, I would think the younger yeah. people were more connected to the world, and now, no longer. They're, they're connected to yeah. the meta world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, we should probably talk about economics or something. Because <laughs> we've kind of been doing that. Yeah, um, we have a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, but what well, no, so I well, which is we discussion about venture capital a little bit, right? So like, yeah. I keep reading more and more about SoftBank. I keep thinking more and more about this. Um, it seems like uh, great financiers are always coming with more ways to, to squeeze how I'll call it Ma and Pa Omaha made money before. You know, in in you know the stock market, you took a company public. You know, even Facebook. And recently, Facebook it went up a hundred percent over a year. Um, people could have made real money on that, whether or not you believe in the fundamentals, Chris. People could have made money. And that's true with a lot of, I think, IPOs. Um, but I don't think that's going to be true as much anymore. And while we've only seen one mega fund, the Vision Fund, um, I'm curious about whether you think we're in for a whole lot more of those and all the other places you feel like, I mean, all, yeah, that's a very encompassing question. What are the places you feel like we are getting squeezed um, in finance that aren't as obvious that people are abundantly talking about? And what places do you feel like we're getting squeezed that nobody's talking about? Well, I think, um, Neil, you touched on one that's really dear to me. It's the In the public markets, you know, there have been just fewer and fewer IPOs and um, – the function of the public <clears throat> securities markets really was, has historically been an avenue for funding, for funding the best ideas, 
for allocating capital to the better ideas. And um, I don't lament this directly in a sense that the uh, private equity venture capital has come in and largely supplanted the public markets for their original function. The markets have then gone to just more trading um, and kind of become more of a casino in a way. But what I think about long term, and maybe this is a chicken and egg question, is it creates even a further wealth inequity, a bifurcation of people with money who are really investors in the economy and everyone else who is a wage earner and or not invested in the economy. You know, so that <clears throat> these things have happened um, coterminously. They've happened together. And, well, they're not over yet, so it hasn't terminated. But the the decline in the public markets is, is uh, participation in the public markets is remarkable. And then even the participation in what remains of the public market um, has been abstracted to just index buying and so-called characteristics like low volatility stocks, whatever those are. <laughs> and you put them in an exchange-traded fund or ETF, and then you sell that characteristic to people who want, quote, exposure, unquote, to that characteristic. It's really been abstracted three and four layers from, is this a good idea? Is this company cash flow? Is, are they growing? What <laughs> what do they do? <laughs> is this helping civilization or not? Or who's going to vote the shares even? I wonder about all these questions. Vanguard's not voting the shares. So if if Google changes their motto from don't be evil to let's be evil as hell, <laughs> who's going to vote against <laughs> Who's going to stand up nobody? Right. <laughs> nobody, right? Right. I mean, I, you know, exaggerate, of course. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, if that, you know, in those kinds of uh, events, corporate governance is certainly suffering. But uh, I just think really the whole um, – zeitgeist, the whole spirit of uh, public enterprise and free enterprise will suffer. But you're um, you're right. I mean, the Wilshire 5000 Index has something like 3,400 plus companies now. They still call it the Wilshire 5000 Index. It was the broadest index of the market before, but now it's, you know, just naturally the whole the number of publicly traded companies continues to shrink. And well, so, uh, so your, your, what percentage of your client's money is in, you know, these alternative assets, these alternative products that, that you're looking at? So these we private REITs, these, you know. Yeah, it, it varies. It does vary depending on the individual family. No, no, I, I'm sure do. it does. But right, but of, of it ranges. What, what, what do you yeah, think probably – um, uh, probably around uh, 16 to 18% somewhere in there, which so just is a little higher. Math, I'm going to call it 20, okay? Just for yeah. my easy math. Yeah. What do you think, yeah. round, rounding it the same way 10 years from now, I'm going to assume you're still going to be doing this 10 years from now because mm-hmm. um, you're not going to like job retrading. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> what percentage of the assets do you, do you wonder about will be in these alternatives yet again? I think more. It's yeah, been I mean, do, do you get to ever higher. over half? Wow, that's interesting. It does depend. The 
the the marketplace for so-called alternatives is also evolving. Um, it used to be that all of these types of alternative investments, for the most part, had lockups and long periods where there was no liquidity or marketability of the underlying security. So those that naturally limited their usefulness in the <laughs> in a portfolio especially when people might need liquidity or marketability sooner than three to five years or whatever the terms were. But now more and more of them are just coming to the market and saying, hey, we're a Reg D or 40 Act fund, meaning they're they're uh, registered with the SEC and they have liquidity in 60 days and, you know, you're, you're, you've got more transparency in certain ways about the way this thing is structured and how it's cash flowing and, and sometimes you get higher up in the capital stack by, you know, by having um, um, first lien debt or whatever the, the process is. They're just – they're more flavors um, and more accommodating uh, terms to the investors. So um, – and, again, there's just this alternate uh, alternate decline in the, the market for public securities, publicly traded securities. So those What's things so- combined mean – so you, what, what I think I, I'm going to try and read between the lines versus forcing you to ask the yes or no. You think there is a potential that 10 years from now, half of what you are investing in could be these uh, alternative assets? Is that, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then, then being the does being the best RIA mean you have access to the best deal flow? And how does that continue to happen? Like how how does your business personally evolve um, so that our our good friend at Caltech um, can mm-hmm. still have access mm-hmm. to the best deals and continue to make money and do her, her brilliant research. How, how does that actually work? I mean, I understand how I'm building deal flow, but, and I kind of understand how you would do it because I've sat with you for so many hours of my life, but I don't understand how most RAs will do it. Um, well, in the, uh, well, right now, the way that we're doing it is meeting with uh, like you are in certain ways, family offices and those who have um, dedicated a portion of their investment portfolio thinking and research to these sort of private deals um, and private deal flow. So it's uh, sort of like the old Value X conference, uh, which still exists, where, you know, um, portfolio managers would all meet, especially those who are of a certain um, – style, like deep value managers. Value X was one that used to, I think still meets in Switzerland. And there you go and share ideas. Like I really like Allergan because the cash flow is improving and yes, they can't replace Botox or whatever, but it's still <laughs> such a blockbuster drug. And my wife loves it too. So, right. And this, so the stock is cheap and then everyone takes note, you know, and you share basically an idea sharing and you go around and right. sort of like having a a team of um, of uh, portfolio managers that uh, you can take suggestions from, and just through that friendly operation. Warren Buffett, of course, did it with Bill Ruwain at Sequoia and um, Conniff, and uh, a lot of those guys um, would often meet Charlie Munger and uh, different places, along with Ben Graham initially, their teacher, um, and just think about ideas and what to put in the portfolios and, you know, that kind of thing. So do so you um, think you'll be involved in more and more of that as time goes on? Those are, yeah, those 
those um, sort of roundtables are are growing. So it's a yeah yes. <laughs> so that's one. That's one what? avenue. Yeah. Are, are we going to see more of the the rise of you know curators who are just I don't know real promoters, right? You know, is, is there going to be you know clear cut you know fifty great promoters that if you're you know they're sending you whether it's websites or actual people probably more like websites you know where you can actually look through it would almost seem to me <laughs> like a it's like the you know like the public market without being public. <laughs> Here, here are the top 10, 20 companies you should be looking at in, you know, industrial metals. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that? Do you think we're going to see the rise of more of these online marketplaces to fill that need? Yeah, it's it's, um, it's possible. Well, too, as a financial advisor in this space, um, it's sometimes easier. You know, if we have a company that, a family, and especially a lot of these um, deals are family-run, like many of them, or have a long track record. So, let's say, you know, Neil, 10 years from now when Zoic has a lot of uh, rubber that's hit the road and success, uh, it would be easier for us to just trust you. And we really don't need to have, you know, uh, constant flow of new arrows in our quiver, we can choose the one that best suits the current clients and say maybe we have, you know, 15 or 20 different private offerings that we have in our wheelhouse. And maybe we add one or take one out in a couple of years or a year, every six months or whatever. But, you know, we don't constantly need new deal flow when we have a you know, a company, for example, so that is, Sealy, that's been doing industrial real estate, small and medium-sized warehouses. <laughs> Not very exciting, but <laughs> very necessary. Always yeah. Always needed, and they've been doing it for 60 or 70 years. You don't either. constantly have to. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. right. going to be here another 50. Yeah. It's just the question is, does this piece fit in a portfolio for Neil and Merganka or whomever, right? That it does, then they're the best at it, that would be a win. But um but I am fascinated by all the disruptive technologies and the and the march of science with a small S. <laughs> Not scientism but science. And um and seeing all these things come to fruition. And you know, technology really is only a way for us to extend our wants and needs. Um so <laughs> gotta be fun. Yeah, we better be good. Right? Don't be evil, Neil. Don't be evil. <laughs> it sounds to me like you need uh Han on, on your uh, investment committee to help you make those. Yeah. 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 No, this well, is, there's, you know, there's, technology's not going to lead to more mindfulness. This is not last. It's not worth it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what we need, though, right? That's a part of what you were lamenting earlier, the um, – that the younger generation is less mindful, less connected, um, a little more disconnected, and uh, that's that's really the challenge. I've been thinking about this a lot, even since we had one of our podcasts, and I was rereading a book called Small is Beautiful, and it's, you know, when we, is there something, I guess the alternative question I ask myself, is there something suicidal about the way scales? I'm picking on yeah. Amazon, but it's, I mean, but I live in is. Seattle. I can say yes for sure, right? I mean, 
not yeah. all not all big things are good, and maybe Amazon's perfect right now. I'll just I'll just call it yeah. that for 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 argument's sake, just to end that part. Yeah. But yeah, the more I think about, you know, as we scale as a fund, staying smaller will allow us to just have more fun at it, right? Um, I shared the story that Cooper shared with me. This is all related. I shared the uh, story that Cooper shared with us during 12 Leaders, and it was that uh, he'd gotten a chance to interview Michael Schumacher. And somewhere inside the interview, Michael Schumacher was saying it was just getting easier and easier and easier. <laughs> like, here he is, the most winning, you know, uh, driver ever. And most mm-hmm. people are mm-hmm. coming to that pressure. It's becoming easier. And I thought, like, that's because the business is kind of – because well, you know, I guess he wasn't in business per se. But that's because mm-hmm. it's kind of staying the same. And I actually saw a lot more beauty in that than growth. Um, so where mm-hmm. maybe it would have been nice to, to go for something super large, the niche typically wins. Um, mm-hmm. And that's how it can get easier. So I've been trying to, I've been debating the, the large versus, you know, the niche versus the, you know, what, what's going to make this more fun? What's going to make this, uh, you know, like the best thing in the world to wake up to go look at? Yeah. And that yeah, seems to me to be a more important focus. Like, how can I be super excited to to go after that every day? Yeah. There are so many analogies in the real world and with real businesses that are that where you can't take the human element out. Like, I, I'm so happy that I, in college, worked in the restaurant industry because you saw so much, you know. For Wolfgang. I worked, I worked for Commander's Palace restaurant one summer and the executive chef was Emeril Lagasse. Oh, Emeril Lagasse. Yeah, Emeril. The famous. And I worked at uh, Windsor Court Hotel for a long time. We had several chefs there. Most notoriously, John Besh, who has a little Me Too trouble, but he built, you know, uh, a little mini empire down there. Um, And the question for all of those guys as chefs even was, do we keep it simple? and have one restaurant that is excellent at front of the house, back of the house, quality of the food, innovation in the kitchen, or do you try to scale and you naturally will lose something? (laughs) Well, no, I actually think about a few niches, and you must be doing some of that, some, Mm -hmm. a few niches. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. If I was just working on the best tomato soup every day, I might be bored. Um, but, but if I was working on soup, you know, and I could go to mushroom right. and, and asparagus and, you know, broccoli saffron. That might be really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, there's that, the, yeah, the book Small is Beautiful. He takes the, uh, what he calls Gandhi's economics, Gandhiji, <laughs> Bapu, his economic model where, he believes that the machine should not obsolete the human. I'm not saying this properly. <laughs> I'm not no, getting the idea sense. across. Yeah, no, 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 it makes but, sense. Right, right. Yeah. It shouldn't render them less potent. You know what I mean? In a way, like, like even if you build a loom, you still need the weaver's eye to create the beautiful patterns and program the loom and whatever it is, right? So you can have the spinning wheel in Gandhi in Gandhi's uh example 
but still you it's naturally human you know it's not all um just computer programmed i have to say neil I rebel a little bit as a music lover against uh, Pandora and algorithms choosing my music for me. So what should I Pandora, do? I think you're more of a music lover than me. So what should I be listening to if I'm not using Pandora? Then? I don't know. But in the same way, I, I, I ask myself, am I just crazy? Because in the, you know, in the olden days when I would let listen me, to let, jazz let me just, radio. Let me answer that first part of the question. The answer yeah. is yes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but but you know, I used to trust a DJ or a disc jockey or someone at the radio station who I believed in, who I thought was tasteful to make the choices. So in in a way, they were, you know, putting on new records or songs I may not have heard, or something that might spark some interest or in me. That you know, it wasn't me making the choice, but I had given it to another. Carbon-based, <laughs> carbon-based trader to do the work for me, but not uh, just a programmed algorithm. You know, maybe I would, re- I would, re- I feel it because some of the algorithms are woefully inadequate. But other than that, <laughs> I think you need Laura for. Uh, I've been listening to uh, chanting monks. What is it? Uh, no, Gregorian chant. I can tell you, you don't ah. really care. What they're choosing for you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's something I have no knowledge of, or no understanding, right? Just which is just beautiful, and it takes nobody, anybody can recognize that. No talent needed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Over the weekend, we just we, when we were cruising around in the car, that's what we started listening, going chants, and we're like, wow, wow. Yeah, but but yeah, I bet that's beautiful. I think though, Neil too. I just you never know when a whole business model is just going to go away. Poof, right? Right? Yeah. Actually, you know, it's funny. Our last few conversations have told me um, venture capital will become even more important than it is today. Yes. I, yeah. I think it'll become a, you know, I don't, it, I don't know if it'll become ground zero, but it certainly has a chance to be one of the, one or two of the most important um, parts of the finance committee where I think Right now, it's a more important part of the innovation community, and it happens to have finance in it. Um, yeah, that's one of the things, I, lessons I guess I'm learning from you. But I'm in, I'm in a great place. <laughs> be lucky to no, be you are in a great place, and and also I'll say that it's it's a necessary place. You know, there are some things that the public markets are not cut out for, and that is to incubate a young idea. You say that, but the Toronto to Stock Exchange seems to be doing well a heck of a lot. Um, well, and the Nasdaq did it early on, you know. Right. But I, 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 you know, that it really, it really did. And I mean, this has changed for reasons outside of the scope of our discussion, like regulatory hassles, and you know, I mean, a lot of companies are just like, no, why would I go public and have all of these reporting requirements and have to hire a whole legion of uh, accountants and forensics and investor relations people when I can just talk to. And the you know the VC world is now so rich um, and deep that we don't have to go public for nine to twelve years or never, uh, as Uber says. I, I think I told you. No, I, think I told you too. My, even my brother-in-law got some uh, some soft bank money recently, right? At his company, yeah. Nextenta. Yeah, 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 and yeah. So 
It's a little bit by here. They're, they're brilliant. They're doing all the right things. Who, my Yoshi song and stuff? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just oh, yeah. A little bit, yeah. The very few things I've heard, I'm pretty wild that they were the first ones to come up with it as well. Like, it doesn't seem like it should have been that hard for, you know, I don't know, um, that J.P. Morgan would come up with it. But it doesn't seem like – it seems like Bank of America should have been there already. Yeah, that's not their role, though, you know. They've got mission creep, Mayoshi Son and the SoftBank uh, Limited Partnership, that uh, investment arm, are pretty focused. Um, but it is a lot of money. You know, they raised a ton $100 billion. for that fund. I, I asked yeah. you, I think. I asked you, I and there are two classes of stock, right? There's two did classes you, of stock, too. Did you read that deck ever? I want to send it to you if you haven't. No, the I have not. Fund deck? Send it. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to hunt that back it. down and figure that out and send it to you. Yeah, thank you. We'll, we'll try and add it to the notes. I think it's public information of this podcast. But Chad, yeah, I believe find it, let me know. Yeah. Yeah, it was like a $100 billion capital raise, and I think they were targeting like 86 or something, and it was like over 100, 106 maybe. I don't know. It's, uh, well, we'll the, the thing I wondered numbers. about, one of, the big one of the big questions I wondered about is if repatriate repatriation of income earned in other countries was, you know, fee or tax-free, would have Apple really been an investor? Or would have Apple figured out how to bring even more innovation? Would have they you know, built a few more buildings in Cupertino and said, hey, this is all innovation. Here's the other six places we're going after. Um, would have they created more jobs? Uh, and would have the Vision Fund not existed had, had countries made that all easier? That's one of the the things I've been wondering a little bit about. Mm-hmm. I guess it's always easy to speculate, but it's just I'm I'm curious what what levers lead to you know such drastic change in the market like they're leading that is you know awingly impressive. And now what you're seeing also that it's also leading to is a ton of venture capital funds are raising more than a billion dollars too. Where they didn't used to, so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it'll take a number of years to figure out whether it was actually worth it or not. And they're still not raising anywhere near that. They're still raising like one one hundredth of what the other guys are raising. Yeah, yeah, you can see the capital raising going on. That's one side. It might seem euphoric, but it's hard to know because there's not any precedent, right? It's unprecedented. Um, but I do know that historically, whenever there's a big capital spending boom, it usually is there's a bust that follows. It's just natural, right? Boom bust. It's a part of our psychology as human beings. But you know, the most recent one, the only capital expenditure boom we had recently was in the oil patch in 2014, and that busted spectacularly. But um, pipelines and all that stuff. But the um, in the VC world. You know, I just wondered how the Vision Fund would be able to put all that money to work, but I guess there's room, and we will see, as you mentioned, how it works out. You know what? I I think it'll work more than it doesn't. Um, I don't, I don't completely understand liquidity. Um, Mm -hmm. I understand the value creation portion. I just don't know how to capture that. That, That's the part I have the hardest time with, right? Because there's only so many places that can offer you that amount of money. So I, I don't 
I don't know that I really believe in the value of Uber, but whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Let's say you get to a $100 billion company. Where do you get that money from? Like, are you just going to start taking, you know, because not all of that's really going to be based on cash flow. So it's going to be based on proprietary know-how. Where, where is the, the place where you're going to get a multiplier to stay private and still get that liquidity? That, that's the part I yeah, don't know. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's a great um, catch, Neil, because almost all of the reference points are still to publicly traded companies. And as the publicly traded market sh- continues to shrink or um, – Um, become more moribund. I don't know how to explain it, really. You know, do you still look to that? Because the uh, the whole argument for you know Snapchat valuations, and Uber's valuation, or Lyft, or any of these, is what their compatriots in the public markets are trading. What are the multiples, you know, that are ascribed to publicly traded companies that are closest in mission and style and product to what we're doing. You know, my fear is that everything ends up like Las Vegas. <laughs> Let me try and explain. The only way to for SoftBank to get their money someday from Uber is to force them to put flyers and noisy advertisements of Steve Wynn trying to sell me something new again, um, mm-hmm. you know, in, in every Uber car, right? Like, how are they really going to – because they're, maybe they're going to say, okay, we're, we're going to take a dividend. Fine. That means they need other sources of revenue. And I fear that I'll hate all of them. Like, so mm-hmm. here I was thinking, like, Uber is going to lead to the self-driving car. And it's going to be quiet. It's going to be relaxing. And when I want to go see Chris, I'm just going to be able to sleep and, you know, for an hour when I'm commuting from L.A. And it's going to be great. And now I fear that, you know, Steve Wynn's going to tell me about his newest casino on, on Mars that only Jeff Bezos can right. take into. <laughs> right, 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 right. It's the New York City cab nightmare. Can I turn off this advertising? Help. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean, it's a reasonable, it's a reasonable fear. I think. Um, I think that's just a reasonable fear in our modern society that uh, the attention merchants have got us. That there's no place, even in the checkout line at the grocery store or whatever, to just breathe and have peace. Every year being assaulted by marketing impressions, always, more and more. Yeah, I couldn't even go to Disneyland, Neil, without that awareness. Certainly not Universal Studios. You know, you're supposed to be enjoying your time with your kids, and there's just these loud, blaring advertisements (laughs) that don't stop. Incessant, indefatigable. (laughs) The only thing that's fatigued is my attention and my patience telling you it's crazy but uh anyway modern life um <laughs> can't go ahead yeah oh no uh should we should we just spend a couple more minutes thinking about uh maybe end the episode right there with yeah, cutting you off thing um <laughs> yeah, yeah right, cut, cut it off right yeah, there edit chris out <laughs> just edit me out and that'll be great yeah. <laughs> that's a very fine um, thing but yeah. i wonder a little bit about what we're going to meet your friend on forgiveness and i happen to be there I wonder if, you know, we go for dinner at 6 and then you and I go meet him at like 8.30 and just <laughs> put our phones down and see who's got the best recording of the night. Oh, for be sure. There. He seems like a guy, like, I'd almost want to hug just the way you talk about him. 
you know, the kind of hero that, that we should all have. The, the things you say yeah, about him yeah, yeah, almost yeah. bring tears to my eyes, and that makes me pay attention to him. Yes, it's uh, remarkable. He's a remarkable human being, man. He's really... How hard would that be for us? Not hard. I'll call him up. He's been working in a tax office. He told me, yeah. <laughs> I, I really love him. He's just trying to do so so much, you know. But um, I'll call Gary up and see um, if he can join us for dinner or something, too, and just so you can meet him and he'll have more comfort with the process and uh, everything. Oh, even if we can meet him, yeah. We don't even need to do it yeah. then. We can do it like another month from then. That's fine. Yeah, because then he'll know. Yeah. The other one I'm really curious about is John Cummins, the best communicator I've ever met in the world, right? Um, I think about him. Yeah, often. you've introduced you know, me to some characters that I keep thinking about, right? Like again, yeah. and I, I've never met Donnie. I think about him all the time. I think about uh-huh. John super regularly. Now I think about Gary regularly as well. Just these people have had some crazy influence on me to have spent such small amounts of time with them. Oh, Neil, I'll tell you, when I was in India, it was so funny. I was with this guy, Shantum. Shantum Seth was our tour guide to these Buddhist sites. And Shantum, the mother was a judge and all this stuff in Delhi. And she wrote a book about his family, which I still have to read. <laughs> but so he's from a, you know, sort of connected family diplomatically and otherwise. His brother's a writer. His brother wrote a book called As A Suitable Boy. A Suitable Boy. So I don't know if you've ever read that title, but several people from... <laughs> I think I would have been afraid my... to read it. <laughs> right, right, it's, it's right. Like people are picking me whether I'm going to be a good match to my wife again. <laughs> that thing, I think that's the basis of it, because, you know, they were, they're a, a Hindu family, and uh, the brother's a writer, but he's also gay, um, Shantum's brother. And... Um, but, you know, he said, yeah, there's been, you know, um, persecution of gays and this and that. And it's very confused to me in in, in India because even on the the um, forms you fill out, you can refuse to check your sex or you can put, <laughs> like, there's another box. So, they, and, you know, we saw transvestites at the truck stops. And we just, it's just fascinating to me how the whole spectrum of humanity is laid before us. But anyway, I mentioned John Cummings to Shantum, and he, his jaw dropped, and he's like, oh, he was the lawyer who did the Bhopal thing. That was big, Chris. He said that was, that was the biggest thing for India at the time, because everyone had just written us off that, you know, we would just take this $20 a family or whatever they gave us for this poison gas leak, and all these people died, and, you know, they were just, but to have a lawyer from America come and say he would represent us and represent this whole town was really um, remarkable. And that's John Cummings. So that's a – I think Yeah, Mike, John can't hurt him based on that, right? Um, yeah, 1984, I think that look, we can, happened. And we can just talk about, you, you know, the – we don't even need to go into any of the trial stuff, anything – it would be fun even just to hear about his project, right? Like he's just—he's a. I come, come on, Chris. You must still be learning from your communication with him regularly. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I'm always learning from him. He's a little—he's funny. He's caustic, which I kind of like. <laughs> so you just yeah. 
I mean, he was pretty okay with me calling him, uh, you know, uh, uh, what did I call him? Uh, shakedown artist. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He took it in good stride. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How hard is it for us to get him? Um, I'll ask. I can call him up. I'll call up John and see. I mean, he, he, he you know, he was all about us spreading the word about. Um, would you guys just call it the plantation, or is it now like a monument, or what? Is, yeah, the, the plantation. Wendy plantation. The yeah, Wendy I plantation. Mean, that's right. Um, the high. I mean, let's let's definitely get him on the phone and talk about the Hydeal plantation the whole time. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so he can tell us about Bhopal too, though. I think that's fascinating too. I'd be happy like, to talk about know. it. I'd love to hear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. Do you know what I'd love to learn a little more about is how he learned to how he learned to speak in nuances so well. I can see a lot of minds and get some understanding of how they were constructed. I can't do that as easily with him. Mm-hmm. I was reading an article about like the world's best gambler the other day, and I, I, it took me a little while. It took me about ten minutes of trying to think about how his brain worked and how he's able to see these angles nobody else was. And I finally got there. Ten minutes in, I was like, okay, I get it. I, I, I get this guy. I can't do that with John. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's a trip, John Cummings. <laughs> I can't do that with John. Like, I, yeah. Even if, 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 if it means we have to, we're forced to go to New Orleans and listen to some music for a weekend before we meet him, I'm, I'm happy to. <laughs> I'm happy to I'm happy to take one for the team for this podcast, Chris. We gotta get this guy. <laughs> yeah, that would be a tough sacrifice you would be making, Neil Modi, I know. You're gonna take me to Vaughn's? Oh ter- oh geez, Chris, yeah, please. Just terrible. <laughs> right. Right. Don't eat the free red beans, Neil. I'm gonna make sure you don't touch them. I'm vegetarian. I know, me too. Don't they have pork in it? No, you're not vegetarian. I am. I'm actually vegan, Neil. I've been since November. Let's look back up a whole second here. I, I know you said your life changed. Okay, wait. I've had, I have eaten fish. I have eaten fish. Okay. You're a pescatarian. Are you going to try and stay kind of, vegetarian? Yes, I am going to stay vegetarian. Yeah. So are, are you still happy to go for vegetarian sushi at least to the sushi joint that we love? Yes, I am happy to go there. Yes. Um, oh. Do I get any preview about how your life was changed in India? I it's something I keep wondering about. That's that's probably one of the things I thought about on the weekend. You told me that going oh, really? to India changed your life. I was like, I have to that's tell a you more about it. Pretty dramatic statement for Chris to be yeah. saying to me. Yeah, but I have to I have to tell you about that later because my wife's calling me and I have to go. Go. I love you all. See you on Wednesday. Me. I love you, Neil Modi. I'm going to call you back and we'll tell I'll tell you all about India and how beautiful the motherland is. It really is beautiful. <laughs> All right. Take care, my brother. Bye.